The Pull is brought to you by the North American Handmade Bicycle Show, the world's premier annual gathering of bicycle frame builders and frame building enthusiasts. The 2019 show will take place March 15th to 17th at the Sacramento Convention Center in Sacramento, California. We hope to see you there. From Red Kite Prayer, I'm Patrick Brady with The Pull. On this week's show, my guest is frame builder Todd Ingermanson, who is part of a relatively rare set of artisans known for crafting nearly any sort of bike. While many builders base their business on mostly, or even exclusively, doing just one thing, such as road bikes, Ingermanson, under his label Black Cat Bicycles, has developed a reputation for building mountain bikes, road bikes, gravel bikes, and even touring bikes. Ingermanson is also unusual in that he fillet braises almost all of his frames. In 2016, Black Cat won Best in Show at the North American Handmade Bicycle Show with a 27-plus bikepacking bike. Made for the owner of Bedrock Bags, a company that makes bags for bicycles, the frame was built with a series of brazons by which the bags were attached rather than Velcro straps. The look this gave the bike was clean and impressive and allowed Inger Manson's paint job to show through all the better. Black Cat is based in Aptos, placing him near a surprisingly high concentration of builders located in the Santa Cruz area. Well, Todd Inger Manson, man, welcome to the pool. Thank you, sir. Yeah. How are things down in sunny Aptos? Um, well, normally it's not sunny. However, this... <laughs> This year, for some reason, has been sunny. Um, so uh, things are good. Things are good. Cool. You getting out much in riding? Um, a little bit, yeah. Um, I've uh, had my lady friend. Uh, she separated her shoulder and broke her scapula, and that was a couple weeks ago. So I've been playing nurse for the last couple weeks. But uh, short of that, yeah, I've been doing pretty good in, in getting out. Oh, well, I'm I'm sorry to hear that about Jen. She is fully rad, and you're a good man for taking care of her. Um, I will never well, forget. Well, I owe it to her. Yeah. I, oh, excuse me. I owe it to her because uh, I broke my femur a few years ago, and oh, she funny. was very generous with her time. So, Well, excellent. You know, yeah, sometimes returning the favor feels good, huh? Yes, I, I remember being uh, in Nissine Marks uh, with you and some other folks and on that descent uh, in there. And she came whooping by me quite literally on a section that I want to say was like at least 12 percent um, zipped by me. No brakes. Yeah. Whooping as she went. Uh, and I was like, OK, that was the best move of the entire ride today. Um, I, I, I will, that sounds I, about right. <laughs> yeah, I will. I will never ever forget that moment because I was busy easing my my bike over the roots of some tree, and she came flying by, no brakes, and I was like, uh, obviously Todd is with the right woman. <laughs> yeah, she she is not a good rider for a girl. She is a good rider. She she has passed uh, a lot of very good riders. So, um, yeah, you can hold yourself within that group. Yeah. She's just rad full stop. And you know, yeah, none of this title nine stuff. She's just rad. Um, yes. well, uh, our, our wishes to a uh, speedy healing for her. Well, thank you. I'll pass that along. Yeah. All right. On to the questions. So dude, you work in steel and to my knowledge, every bike I've seen of yours has been fillet braced. But I also know that you make lugs. So this leads me to two questions. <laughs> First, why is fillet brazing your go-to for construction? And second, when do you opt to make lugs? Um, let's see. So I think fillet brazing for me is the most beautiful as well as the most flexible 
method of building. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of things you can do and a lot of aesthetic effects that you can get by fillet brazing that you just can't get any other way. Um, and with uh, using brass as well as silver on some things, you can kind of get some interesting, uh, like I said, effects that TIG welding doesn't really offer because you have that bead um, that you just can't really get rid of because that's what's actually <laughs> holding everything together. Right. Um, now, as far as when I choose to use lugs is has a lot to do with the if I'm using carbon tubes or not. Um, oh, and I okay. haven't done that in a while, but with the carbon tube, you need a little bit more surface area to bond the lug to the tube than what you would be able to buy from a long shen or, um, you know, another Everest type, uh, investment cast. Lug. Sure. Okay. Now let's go back to something you just said. You talked about different aesthetic effects that you can get with fillet bracing. You know, I'm aware that some builders, you know, use a big swoopy fillet. Uh, some use a pretty tiny fillet. Uh, yours is as small and yet still beautiful as I can recall seeing. Talk to me about some of the, the different choices you may make in creating a fillet. Um, I can't really say that it was ever a choice that I made. Um, you know, like, oh, a tiny fillet, the fillet for me. I don't know that that was ever really something that I came up with. I think it's more just how you lay it on and how you take it off and, and all that. Um, personally, I think the smaller fillet is a little bit better because the, the quicker you could get in and out of the joint, the better. Um, just because that's less heat on the tube, so you're going to get um, a much smaller heat-affected zone than you would on a larger fillet. And I'm not sure that makes that much of a difference, to be perfectly honest with you, if you're selecting the right tubes and you're putting it to the, together correctly and all that. I'm not sure that it makes that much of a difference. Um, scientifically, I'm sure that it does, but in the in the world that we're living in, um, just riding the bikes and you know not crashing into brick walls and stuff. I'm I'm not sure that it makes that much of a difference, but um, you know I'm kind of shooting for the best possible scenario. Um, so yeah, a uh, small fillet seems to hold everything together just fine. I've mm-hmm. never really had a failure on a joint on a fillet, so I don't know. Fingers crossed, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um... Well, now a little bit more about fillets. So I I guess I want to say, you know, my perception of, you know, the various styles of joining bicycle tubes together, fillet brazing, it strikes me as an increasingly lost art. You know, of the builders I who are out there who I know do it regularly, I can think of Peter Weigel, Steve Rex, Dave Kirk, Chris Bishop, and you. I mean... Those, you know, those are the only builders who I think of who just time and time again go back uh, to fillet brazing. I mean, Bishop does a lot of lug work. Um, Dave Kirk does a fair amount of lug work, as does Peter Weigel. Um, You know, you and Steve Rex are the only two guys I can think of offhand who really um, are known first and foremost for your fillet work. Um, and yours is a little different from him, as as we've mentioned, the uh, the small fillets. Um, I, you know, given that I usually see uh, larger radius uh, fillets in the transitions between the tubes, I'm curious about, you know, given how many people have, have settled on a, a bigger fillet, I, I'm going to assume that some of that is because it's easier to shape and clean up and make sure that you've got a nice smooth radius. Um, what, you know, what do you do? Um, I mean, you can't use a dynophile in a, in a, in a transition that small, can you? How do you clean something like that up? You can use a dynophile um, in a small uh, radius. Uh, it just depends on how wide the belt is. They have an eighth inch wide belt that that'll get in there pretty well. Well, 
that will get in a lot of the the fillet um but a lot of it is just strip sanding and you really have to be careful with the dynafile um because it will it'll murder a tube you know right. in a heartbeat as aggressive as it is on the brass it's just as aggressive on the steel so you really have to stay away from the the edges of the fillet um and be really careful with uh with the dynafile um a lot of it is um, you know, little, little files. Um, so they have, I don't know, down to like an eighth inch diameter, um, a chainsaw file actually, I think is what they are. Um, and that'll get into pretty much wherever you need to get it in. Um, however, a lot of it just has to do with putting it down right. You know, um, any time that you can put into the fillet is less time that you have to take out of the fillet if you get my drift you know sure putting sure. it on correctly to start with will save you so much heartache and pain um in the future uh you know whether it's finishing or painting or sanding or any of that stuff mm -hmm. um putting it on right and making sure that those edges wet out um which is the term uh, which is kind of the transition between the fillet and the tube. Uh, wetting it out is where you get a really nice, um, literally wet transition. So um, mm -hmm. trying to laying, trying to lay it down correctly is <laughs> is worth its weight in gold, really. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice to hear you talk about, you know, how much work it is to take off brass. So often I hear builders talk about how, how brass is soft. Um, and you know, I, I've, I've had a hand in building a frame. Um, you know, I helped out on one frame and, uh, you know, did my share of filing and trying to get globs of brass off stuff and even globs of silver, also allegedly soft. And um, <laughs> I, good Lord, that's, you know, that is not soft stuff. It's metal. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it, it's it's physical work. You know, it actually is physical work. Um, there's nothing romantic about, you know, standing in one spot literally filing and strip sanding for hours on a frame you know it did it, it is much more labor intensive than tig welding or something like that i i hate to you know try a and sing a sad song about <laughs> my plight in life but it really it is a it's a it's a physical job yeah i i'm curious like you know how long does a file last i mean are you going to go through one of your smaller files in a frame or are you going to get a couple frames out of a file? You know, how quickly does oh, stuff yeah. wear out? Oh, yeah, yeah, you can, you can, yeah, I don't know, six months is when you really start to kind of blow them out. Um, and then if, if you replace it in six months, then you get the new file and you lay into it. And, oh, I should have replaced this a couple months ago. <laughs> but, I mean, really, they're not, you don't blast through them if you are sticking with brass. Um, if you are filing steel with it, then it's going to um, blow out a lot quicker. Gotcha. Now, but those uh, chainsaw files are really cheap, surprisingly cheap. So, you know, for $4, you can make your life better. So, Okay. Uh, and by chainsaw file, you're talking about the sort of file that you use to sharpen a chainsaw chain, correct? Correct. Yep. Okay. Um, yeah, something I try not to go anywhere near. Um, <laughs> I, I like all my digits. Um, and what with being a touch typist. Um, okay, so moving right along. You know, these days, I see a lot of builders who do just road bikes or just mountain bikes. They focus on, you know, a bike for one sort of discipline. Um, you're not like that, are you? Um <laughs> I've seen mountain no, bikes, no. I've seen cross bikes, I've seen road bikes, I've seen gravel bikes, I've even seen photos of touring bikes. Um, you know, it's, 
I'm less curious about your interest in building a diversity of bikes than what it takes to maintain a reputation for, oh, Todd's a great guy to go to for X. How do you, how do you keep that many balls in the air reputation wise? I don't know. <laughs> um, Can we try that answer again? I, what's that? Can we try that answer again? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, let's see. I think originally I, I built what I was interested in, which was, well, I'm back then. I mean, there pretty much were only mountain bikes and road bikes. There were cross bikes for sure, but that was such a niche that, you know, especially here in Santa Cruz, it was an option, but outside of Santa Cruz really didn't go very far. Um, and so when you build to your interest, I think that that comes across in your work. You know, you, you care about how much bottom bracket drop is on a cross bike versus a road bike versus a gravel bike, you know. And so I think I don't I'm not 100 percent sure because it's, it's hard to tell from my seat, to be perfectly honest. Um but I think that building within your interest and building within your range of, I hate to say expertise, but building within your range of interest um, kind of, hmm, <laughs> I'm not sure quite how to put this, but it, it's, it's, it's one of those things that just comes across in your work. Sure. You know, if, if you're just going in and knocking out, road bikes, but you don't really care about road bikes, or if you're going in and knocking out 29ers because that's what's hot right now, or fat bikes, or fixed gears, or whatever, because that's what's paying the bills, then that might come off in your work eventually. Um, But I really do have an interest in all those bikes. You know, um, that said, I've never built a fixed gear bike, never in my career. I've never built a fat bike. And it's not necessarily because I'm not interested in those things. It's because my customers seem to be interested in what I'm interested in. So it's almost reacting to their wants and what they see in me and my interests Mm -hmm. as much as it is my desire to, well, I'm going to make 14 cross bikes this year and 17 mountain bikes and it, it's it it's not like that at all, for sure. me anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. Also, I think Northern California has a long history of the same people ride road bikes as ride mountain bikes as ride cross bikes. Uh, so I think the same customer can own a bike by me and a, a cross bike from Rick Hunter and a road bike from Paul from Rock Lobster and, you know, it's it's all a happy family, I think, here in Northern California. Yeah, yeah. And that is one of the really interesting things about where you are, is the number of builders, you know, within a half-hour car drive of you. Uh, I I can't think of any other place around that has the same sort of concentration of guys, and yet, you know, you're all diverse. I mean, you know, yeah, I see, uh, I see road bikes, cross bikes, gravel bikes, uh, and mountain bikes from Rock Lobster. Um, sure. So, you know, it's, it's as well as Rick Hunter. Yep. As well as John Coletti, as well as, you know, all these guys that are here in town. Yeah. Um, I think it, it's, it's pretty well accepted that that's, that's what we all do. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, a really neat thing to get down there and see, uh, the incredible diversity of custom bikes. Um, it's just, it's not like any place else I go in the country. Uh, I, you know, one of my favorite things about visiting the Santa Cruz area. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's talk about one specific bike for a moment, that bike packing bike of yours that won best in show at the North American handmade bicycle show back in that was 2017, correct? Um, I think it was maybe 2015, no, 16, 17 Sacramento, or 16. The, yeah. Maybe 16. Yeah. Okay. okay. No, because right. that was somewhere else. 
Okay. I don't remember. <laughs> the, the last time we were in ago. Sacramento. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, one of the things that I really loved about that bike was that you fixed the bags uh, to the frame with brazons rather than just uh, using typical Velcro straps. I mean, after the show, you told me that, you know, the, the, the bike was for the guy who owned the company that made the bags. And so he was able to make the bag special to be attached with brazons. But then, you know, I don't know, maybe we were having a beer and you admitted that you didn't really like doing all those brazons for it. Um, it had such an incredible look, though. I'm curious, you know, why was there that disconnect between its appearance and just the amount of work involved? Um, I think I have a, a pragmatic streak in me that that runs fairly deep that makes me kind of put the brakes on whenever somebody says, oh, I want this thing fitted to this thing fairly permanently or make it so this thing only fits this other thing in this one certain way. Um, Velcro straps are pretty easy. You know, um, if the bag were to fail, you could go run to the store in theory, whatever store that might be, and um, get a new Velcro bag and put it on and off you go. Um, doing something with the specific brazons makes it specific to that bag. I'm kind of a fan of modularity, you know. Um, I appreciate that. Where, yeah. It, yeah, if you're on a bike tour, which I have been, and, you know, things go wrong, um, seams rip on bags or um, racks break, all kinds of stuff can go wrong on a bike tour and does go wrong on a bike tour, and you're kind of left holding the bag, um, pardon the pun, and you're trying to figure out how to how to make it all go back together and get back on the road. So I'm always a little hesitant to fix things in one particular scenario. Um, Joey, the the guy who I built the bike for, like you mentioned, owns the company Bedrock Bags. So that was a little bit of a, a more special circumstance because, you know, <laughs> he makes the bags and it's his problem, problem not mine. So, yeah, yeah. Um, but typically I'm, I'm kind of more of the mindset that flexibility leads to uh, good outcomes in the future. I, I can definitely appreciate that, but... I don't want to go fully into this fact uh, just yet. I'll save it for a later question. But, dude, you do your own paint, and Velcro straps are kind of, I don't know, murder on paint? Yes, most definitely. Um, but, you know, it's a touring bike. <laughs> it's a touring mountain bike. Um, if it's not going to get scratched up, well, then you're doing it wrong. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, <laughs> I just... I don't know. There's something glandular in me that kind of recoils when I think about your paint jobs and then, then getting messed up. Um, sure. You know, yeah, I mean, a, a bike is made to play hard, you know, but st still, dude. Um, okay. I hear you. Before we, before we go into the uh, more into paint, I want to talk branding. Um, to my knowledge, no two black cat bicycles have the same logo. You have violated rule one in the branding handbook uh, from big blocky letters to fancy script. You know, Black Cat has appeared in myriad ways. And despite that, you've thrown all traditional branding to the wind. It really seems to work for you. You know, first, how did you settle on this? And second, why don't you think this has bitten you in the ass yet? Well, um, it's one of those things that I'm not sure that I paid that much attention to at the beginning. Um, you know, when you start a project, you kind of think of this project, whether or not it's the brand Black Cat as a larger entity or as uh, a project of a particular customer's bike, you kind of start from the ground up. And you think, well, what's my end goal? And my end goal when I'm making a bike for a customer is to do something different, make that bike theirs, 
you know, um, mm-hmm. make that bike not only fit them, but make it, I don't want to say match their personality, but make it individual, make it theirs. So in that you can just throw all the, the preconceived notions, if you will, or what you did last week or what you did two months ago or what you did five months ago or five years ago, throw that out the window and just start from scratch and see what tickles your fancy. Um, you know, like there's a lot of times where I'll see a, a typeface and be like, wow, that's really cool. And n- now I can use that as opposed to, you know, oh, well, it doesn't fit in with my brand identity or it doesn't go with my head too badge or this or that. You know, it, it it's a lot more flexible, like I said, coming back to the last question, that it offers um, a good outcome in the end. Um, why it hasn't bitten me in the ass? You got me. Um, <laughs> maybe it's because I'm not really selling Black Cat as a brand. So if it's identifiable from, you know, 10 feet away or 20 feet away, it doesn't matter. Uh, the customer that I'm looking to attract, I don't want to say already knows me, but is aware of the realm that I occupy. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure how many bikes I'm going to sell based on somebody seeing one of my bikes on a roof rack as it drives past them on the sidewalk. You know, it's not, I, I, I just don't think that that's what applies to my business. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of other branding things that you're supposed to do that I don't do. So, um, <laughs> yes, I mean, you know, seriously, Inger Manson would look great on a down tube. It's a nice long <laughs> name and down tubes incidentally are reasonably long. You know, <laughs> why did you go with black cat? Uh, well, Inger Manson is, it's very phonetic. Um, it, but it looks fairly intimidating. You know, if I go by any of the reactions that I had all through school on the first day of school, when my teacher says, Todd, uh, and I just raised my hand. Yeah, that's me. Um, you know, then <laughs> it's, it's, it's intimidating. There's a lot of, a lot of consonants. Okay. So, so this is revenge on your childhood. <laughs> maybe so okay. maybe so all right that's fair that's fair I, you know i mean i hated being called brady bunch when i was a kid and now when i'm like at a counter somewhere like a hotel i just say brady as in bunch and that way they spell it right <laughs> yeah perfect yeah so i i'm i, I hear you um okay back to paint you do your own paint that blows my mind um, and considering how imaginative some of, some of your paint schemes are, um, that's all the more, you know, you're not doing these, you know, blue bike, you know, blue bike with white panels, you, you do stuff. Um, and so, you know, one, I'm, I'm curious about, you know, how did doing elaborate paint jobs, uh, come to be something you were known for, um, and, Two, when someone's ordering a bike from you, you know, what sort of input do they give you given the incredible range of stuff you are willing and able to do? Well, um, how I started was I just, let's see, I was going to the Handmade Show, I think, in Portland way back when. Mm-hmm. and paint jobs were a thing that was happening at the handmade show. And I was taking, I think four bikes and I think only one of those was paid for. And I thought there's no way that I can send these all off to spectrum and have a nice paint job on each of these. So I think it was more in an effort to do some cost cutting that I thought, well, hey, how hard can it be? (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I found out very quickly how hard it can be. Um, But I've always been, excuse me? And yet you persisted. And yet I persisted. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where 
I enjoy challenging myself, um, you know, starting from more or less scratch and kind of figuring it out. Um, you know, and things that work, um, I'll stick with. And if it's just not worth it, then I won't. But it is fun to figure those things out. Um, as far as how much input customers get, um, most people don't really want to give me that much input. Some folks will go so far as to send me a bunch of uh, mocked up designs and things and they're very specific about what they want. But a vast majority of people will give me an idea of what they've liked that I've done in the past. Um, I always ask that they send me some inspiration of things that are not bicycles, things that they like. I've you know, had motorcycles and cars. Cars are a popular one. Racing liveries are quite popular. Um, but that kind of thing. And um, people send me that stuff, and I put it into my brain and crank it out and see what, what comes out. Um, a lot of times people will, will kind of give me an idea of what they've liked and I'll try and tweak what I've done in the past and kind of do a new iteration of something that I've done in the past. Um, but a lot of it is just kind of having a vague idea of what you want when you start. And then by the time you're done masking, it's gone through several ideas and several changes and, you know, there you have it. Most of the time it comes out pretty good. I hope. <laughs> <laughs> well, everything I've seen has been impressive. Um, also, uh, another piece of curiosity. I mean, your shop is a reasonably small, small location. Are you spraying there in your shop or do you go someplace else? Um, I spray it in the shop. Um, it's a pretty small shop. It's about 500 square feet or just shy of 500 square feet. Um, I don't do like a base color or anything. I'll get the base color powder coated on and then I'll do um, some of the details and things like that. And then I will also have somebody else do the clear coat on top of it. Um, so I'm responsible for the design and the details and the logos and that kind of stuff that's all painted on. Uh, and then I'll take it to somebody else to do the clear coats because I want to use that really nice clear epoxy paint um, that's nice and hard and dries really well. But the mm -hmm. fumes of that are pretty terrifying. Um, and my shop is in my house, and I don't, I'm not really super psyched on having those solvents and that scenario in my house. So um, I'll leave that to <laughs> to a guy with a paint booth. <laughs> Understandable. Uh, is it difficult to get wet paint to stick to the uh, to the powder coat? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, yes, if you don't know the tricks. <laughs> uh, meaning you know the tricks. <laughs> I know some of the tricks. Okay. I'm not saying I know all the tricks. All right. Very cool. Um, now. A lot of builders will work in batches. You know, they'll do a bunch of forks or a bunch of rear triangles. Um, do you have uh, a, a work method that's anything like that? Or do you tend to follow a single bike from start to finish? Uh, it depends on the project. Like I've done several uh, production batches for uh, my distributor in Japan and I've done, I think, what, a batch of seven for them is the biggest. And I've done several batches of six. Um, and I was really kind of nervous about doing that because I thought that a single bike from start to finish was going to work out to be a better product um, because your attention was only on that bike. Mm-hmm. However, when I did those batches, I found that actually doing several bikes at the same time, I think, gives a better result because you can really focus on that, that process, that, that point in the process of building the bike. And so not that the first one is bad and the sixth one is the best, 
but you can kind of get into the flow of that process and really kind of nail it down. Sure. Um, that said, I think a, a single bike from start to finish works well. I just don't think it's quite as efficient. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I can build um, a couple or a few bikes, I think that's the sweet spot, maybe a few. Um, I think that's what works really well. Um, yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Um, hmm. um, yeah, I just kind of lost my train of thought there. <laughs> okay, <laughs> no worries. Uh, yeah, we can edit that out, I guess. Uh, yeah. Um, now, um, going to ride quality, how much input does a client get on how his his or her bike should ride? Um, you know, in, in other words, you know, do all your road bikes have similar geometry, you know, once you move beyond the fit? Or will you do a crit bike for one rider and a European-style stage racer for another rider? Um, yes, the bikes do change um, depending on what the customer wants, but very rarely does the customer specify, I want a 402-millimeter chainstay. Mm-hmm. And if a customer does specify that, it always kind of raises a red flag for me because the 402 millimeter chainstay is not necessarily a good indicator of how a bike is going to ride. There's bottom bracket drop, there's head angle, there's, you know, the, the trail, there's all, all these things that kind of interplay with each other. So if somebody comes to me saying, I want a bike with a 402 millimeter chainstay, that's the opener to a conversation of like, well, why do you want a 402 millimeter chainstay? Well, I want it to be super stiff. Like, okay, well, that's that's a different that's a, a different outcome than what a 402 millimeter chainstay is going to get you. So, oftentimes, I'll be able to talk to a customer and kind of get the outcome of what they're looking for, as opposed to you know they want. Uh, 80 millimeter bottom bracket drop and a 402 millimeter chain stay and be like, whoa, that's that's gonna ride really weird. I don't think <laughs> you want that. <laughs> yeah. So it, it, it's, I think it's a question of doing this a while and knowing what questions to ask and know how to listen to what the customer is asking for. Yeah. Um, and then being able to translate those words and feelings into numbers and then translate those numbers into a metal thing that you can throw your leg over and get rat on. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. By the time you finish a frame set, you know, including paint, how many hours do you usually have into it? And, you know, we can start with talking about minimums, say a road frame, and then you know, you can elaborate with something like a touring bike and custom racks that you've made. Sure. Um, the paint really throws an extra wrench into that. So if <laughs> yes. I'm just selling a bike with a single color, just like a simple road bike, no bent tubes, nothing like that, <clears throat> those will, um, those are 30 to 35 hours depending on, you know, um, brazons and depending on if it's got a tapered head tube and, you know, some of those things. Um, or a T47 bottom bracket or, or, or that kind of stuff. So I'd say 30 to 35 hours is about the minimum. Okay. Um, and then paint is a whole nother price list, a whole nother ball of wax. So I can literally spend as much time on a paint job as I do on building the bike. Okay. Um, unfortunately you can't charge the same amount for a paint job as you can for a bike. So you just killed my next question. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Um, but it's one of those things where it, it, I think it creates, I hate to, you know, go back to the marketing jargon, but an added value for, for my bikes, you know, it's, it's something for that customer. It's something that was made for that customer, um, from, 
from the geometry and the fit to the paint job and the logo. Mm -hmm. So, um, and then once you start throwing custom racks into it, oh man, you go with a custom stem and a custom fork and all that, you could easily be in a hundred hours. Wow. Wow. Of course, that brings me to the next question. You know, price-wise, where do you start? And, you know, give me some ballpark sense of where someone can max out. Um, can you ask that one again? <laughs> <laughs> I, I can indeed. Okay, good. Give me some sense you know, we, we're talking hours now, and hours are generally billable at most places, especially law firms. Where where do you start price-wise? And then give me some sense of kind of where you can max out, you know, for somebody who goes nuts with, you know, racks and paint and, the you know, whole ball of wax. Sure. Um, the frames start at 3200 um, and that's with a single-color powder coat job um and then from there the sky's the limit i mean you know i've i've charged eighteen hundred dollars for a paint job on top of a four thousand dollar frame um and that you know that's just the frame and the paint job so (laughs) if you want to spend your money with me i i will take it and and we can make something pretty cool but i i don't know what the limit would be Okay. I'm no, willing no. to find out, though. <laughs> <laughs> You've yet to re- reach that point where you're like, dude, enough. I got to get on to other stuff. Um, no. No, <laughs> I haven't. Um, most of the people that buy my bikes aren't buying some heritage bike that they're going to pass down to their grandchildren or something. You know, most of the people that are buying my bikes want to go out and and ride them and thrash them so i i haven't really sold any twenty thousand dollar bikes i've you know i've sold some fifteen thousand some sixteen thousand dollar bikes um and those make my head swim but you know you can look at it and say like oh we could have spent more money there and there and there and there and there so i i really think the sky's the limit Mm, interesting very cool. Um, yeah, it, you you are one of the guys on my short list as if I need another custom bike. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. Step away from the checkbook. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, please don't. <laughs> you work alone. So that means that you take all the orders, interpret all the fit info, uh, do all the phone time with the client. Uh, cope all the tubes, do all the brazing, and do a big hunk of paint on top of that, as if paint came in hunks. Um, I, why is it you stayed a one-man operation? Um, I think it goes back to that pragmatic streak. Um, I, I like making bikes. I like being in the shop. I like making stuff. That's what I really like to do. Um, if I were to hire somebody, I wouldn't be doing that as much. So maybe it's a selfish thing as much as anything else that I like to, when I go to work, I like to make stuff. I like to go down to the shop and make things. So I don't want to deal with you know, doing payroll or workman's comp or any of the paperwork that's associated with a person, let alone dealing with another personality. And where did that personality put my Allen wrench? And why is this mess here? And I I think I would be a terrible boss in addition to that. <laughs> um, I've always been kind of a hands-on person. Mm-hmm. So I think... I think I want to stay a hands-on person. I'm not building a brand. I'm building bikes, you know? <laughs> that is that is a really interesting way to answer that. I like it. You are not currently taking orders. Um, 
So that kind of brings up two questions for me. One, you know, how many bikes need to make it out of your shop before you start taking orders again? Um, and how long will that take? And, you know, there's an, another question, which is like, how many bikes will you usually produce in a year? So let, let's start with the first one. How many bikes need to make it out of your shop before you'll take orders again? Um, that is a good question. Um, I am looking at the list and it looks like six to nine months more work, um, on the queue. So I'm hoping that, uh, six to nine months I'll be taking orders again. Uh, I think I'm going to be doing it a little bit differently. Um, as opposed to what I've done in the past where you just open up the order book and the orders come in and um, it ends up being a very reactive business model because you're just reacting to what the person next in the queue wants. Mm -hmm. So I think what I'll do is I'll start building small batches um, to keep things efficient and then also be able to say like, okay, hey, cross season's coming up, maybe I'll make some cross bikes as opposed to delivering a cross bike in February to a guy in Michigan saying like, well, <laughs> good luck, bro. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I think that that is what's going to allow me to stay a little, um, a little more proactive as opposed to reactive. Mm -hmm. as well as I think it'll make things a little more efficient, as well as it'll allow me to, um, I think, be, hmm, maybe be a little more in terms of staying on top of standards and that kind of thing. Um, in the past, you're just kind of, I don't want to say stuck, but you're looking at the standards today and you're designing dropouts that you're going to have to make a commitment of two to three years of, you know, this group of dropouts that you're going to have to make. Mm -hmm. And then you buy these dropouts and then the standards change overnight and you're stuck with $7,000 worth of dropouts. So it's going to, I think, cut a lot of that BS out of it. So I'll be able to be a little more proactive in the design of the bike as well as the scheduling of the bike and all that kind of stuff. I think it'll, the bikes will come out um, a little more future proof as well as um, I think a better product in general. So yeah. that's, that's the plan. That's, that's gotta be a real nightmare from, you know, changing axle standards, changing dropouts, uh, changing bottom brackets, um, uh, yeah, disc brake mounts. Yeah. It goes on and on and on. Yeah, I I don't envy you that. You know, I think back on what I was seeing from builders in the 1990s, and you know, it was all English bottom brackets and all quick release dropouts, and you know, all one inch headsets. Uh, and then everybody flip, flipped out when we had to switch to one and eighth headsets, and uh, that was the only real change that there had been since I'd been in cycling. So yeah. Nowadays, yeah. Uh, do you do you direct your uh, your clients toward a particular set of dropouts or a particular bottom bracket standard? Um, I really like threads in a bottom bracket. <laughs> um, now, whether that's a, a British shell or whether that's a T forty seven, they each have um, a a use. Um, I'll use the T47 if I want to route things internally, like a, a brake hose or DI2 routing or, or that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, or if we're going to like uh, the wider mountain bike tires, uh, you know, like a 2.6 or a 2.8, you can keep the chainstay a lot shorter if you're running a T47 shell in the 92 width. Sure. So that's the, the press fit Shimano width, but in a T47 shell. Mm -hmm. So it that just allows you a lot more flexibility in where the, the chainstay hits the shell so you can keep the length 
so much shorter than you could with a British shell. Um, but at the same time, the British shell, like you say, has been around forever. You know, so you can take this bike that you bought in the 90s and put a modern bottom bracket on it or opposite. You can take um, this brand new bike that you got and put on a crank set from the 90s. It, you know, it doesn't matter. So it's, it, it's really nice to try and keep those heritage standards, I guess, if we're looking for a buzzword or something. It's good to keep within those if you at all can. Mm-hmm. Um, especially with the new 30 millimeter spindles that you can run um, a British shell on with all the new bottom brackets. So it's it, it oftentimes you can find a solution without reinventing the wheel. Nice, nice. Uh, now back to one of my previous questions to close up. How many black cats will enter the world in 2018, give or take? That is a good question. Um, a lot of that has to do with paint. Mm-hmm. Um, like I mentioned, you know, there is quite a possibility with each and every frame that I do that I'm going to spend twice the amount of labor on it that I would spend on just a single color bike. So a lot of it has to do with what the customers in the queue want. So your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> We're talking a realm of 30, 25, 30. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if I'm spending 60 hours on half of those bikes, I'd say that's a pretty good output out, output for a, uh, a one-man shop. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, yeah, Uh, especially when you're doing paint as well. That is, um, that's a real work ethic. That's what that is. (laughs) My girlfriend might disagree. (laughs) Well, you know, she, she gets a buy right now since she's on injured reserve. So, you know, let's, uh, I'll defer to her opinion on this. Uh, I don't want to to get you into any trouble. (laughs) Oh, man. Todd, uh, it's been great talking with you. I don't get to do this nearly enough. Uh, We need to get together and do some writing sometime soon. Sure. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks to my guest, Todd Ingermanson, for joining me on The Pull. To learn more about his work, you can visit him at Black Cat Bicycles, and you can check out his latest creation, of which he says, Um, It's mind-boggling. That's it for this episode of The Pull. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, I hope you'll leave the show a good review on iTunes or wherever you get your media. Finally, if you're not already listening to our recent reboot of the Paceline podcast with my new co-host, Celine Yeager, a.k.a. The Fit Chick, I encourage you to give us a listen. Until next week, have a great ride. I'm so glad I know how to edit.